guest is none other than poet David Wojan, and his list of accomplishments is, is long, varied, and um, just quite amazing, and begins with um, his first book called Ice House Lights, which was the winner of the Yale Younger Poets Award in 1982. He has since published six collections of poetry, I believe seven if, it's, if we count Interrogation Palace, seven. which is just out, um, which is a new and selected from all of the previous six. Um, and then we'll hear a poem from the, the new part of New and Selected. Um, awards include the Amy Lowell Poetry Travel Prize and um, Guggenheim Awards. David Wojan has also um, written cl- some essays and published those in collections and other places, and then has edited the last volume of Linda Hall's work, which was published posthumously after, after her accidental death in 1994, published in 1995, and then most recently a collected of Linda Hall's work um, published by Grey Wolf Press. Welcome, David Wojan. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you today. And... Um, as I was telling you before we started, um, I heard uh, when I sort of made the announcement that you were going to be on the show today, my inbox was just full with folks saying, oh, David Wojan, such lovely things about you, not only the sort of list of awards, but things like, oh, his students are so lucky. He's such a generous reader and person and teacher. So it's well, real. Thank you. We're going to talk today a little bit on the show about um, a variety of things uh, We may touch a little bit on the teaching and some of the things you do besides your poems, but let's start, as we always do, with some of your work. If you'll read from the new book, Interrogation Palace, um, one of the new poems. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Uh, This is, in fact, the title poem of the book. It's called Interrogation Palace. How easy in those days to chance upon a ruined palace down the calle or paseo, and a gate would loom before us with its granite bulk, windows shuttered since before the Franco years, and always the colonies of feral cats slinking ironwork, hissing their protracted wars. For example, the Palacio, just off the Retiro subway stop, passed so often you could name each mangy form that slithered from its rubble. Juan Carlos and Buñuel, Sor Juana the tailless and jet-black Federico with his gypsy swagger, Castillo de Gatos. Nighttime, we could hear the screeches, battles, and the guttural pleas from heat. What were we doing here, having stumbled on a country and its capital, a tongue we spoke indifferently, no longer young enough to harbor delusion, but harbor it we did. Sickness and phrase books, the dollar and free fall, and Goya's Saturn swallowing our every good intention. So all that winter you read Chekhov as a charm against the shakes and named the vagrant cats. Our apartment faced the station of the Guardia Seville, its windows looking out upon a floor of brightly lit rooms where interrogations took place. Khaki figures circling men in street colors, splayed on chairs, nights of questions posed till dawn in silence from a square of light, glimpsed from yet another window, itself glimpsed inside memory. And you, every atom that composed you now is gone, 
but still a uniform sips coffee, and the bearded man upon the chair contorts his neck, swaying to the movement of his questioners who circle as another man and woman watch this from within their private supplications, prayers to ward off alcohol and heroin, the slow corrosion of a marriage still not ended with your dying. And the questions still rain down. Everyone's in custody and no one is prepared yet to confess. The uniform sips coffee. The uniform keeps pacing in the four and twenty windows, face us from the ruins as we prowl them, and must answer the choiring snarls, each burning pair of eyes, with sounds returning every question back against itself, each raised arm that seeks to query or protect. And how long did we stand within this brightness, or peer toward it from somewhere in the outer dark, where I remain inside the questions and retorts, the spotlights and the toppled battlements, this panic to scurry toward any sort of shadow? O oh, phantom, O oh, sphinx, O oh, tigress and annihilating muse, before you rend me, grant me one last chance to answer rightly. This time I will not fail you. Thank you very much. That is David Wojan reading the title poem from his newest collection, Interrogation Palace, which is a new and selected poems from 1982 to 2004. And I wonder if we can start with um, the cover of the book. And um, it's a, a piece of um, Sumerian Cuneiform. Yes, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Cuneiform. And um, a lot of the archaeological ruins you write in the notes to the book that were d- destroyed in the two U.S. invasions of Iraq. Um, in a, And you talk a little bit about that in the poem. In a smart, smartish space.com poets Q&A sort of blog that I found online, um, you responded to a question by saying that you al- had always hoped that your poems would be viewed as political. Um, sometimes... W- um, that they protest injustice while at the same time not devolving into familiar lefty pieties or agitprops. Um, that you find yourself focusing on moments of crisis or traumatic events because those events tend to focus and allegorize injustice, bring it into high relief, both in terms of the poem's ideology and of its craft. I wonder, would you talk a little bit about how you think about um, poetry's place in the world? Um, you write about events that are happening now in addition to historical events, in addition to imagined events. Um, Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's, I think, and this is something that is unfortunate about contemporary poetry, well, since since the late 1960s, since the early 70s, I think the movement of American poetry has been very, very inward. Um, it's been in some ways atomized that I think a lot of the um, collective action that the left presented against the government during the Vietnam era just kind of diffused into a lot of separate uh, agendas, a lot of them having to do with identity politics, which is all a very good thing. But, you know, I think it sort of caused American poets to all go about doing a lot of separate, very different things. And really, 
for various reasons, get more solipsistic than public, more solipsistic than civic. And um, I think that's an unfortunate thing. And since the last war, there's been a, a slight change, but I think a lot of American poets just haven't yet developed the tools and the skills to try to talk about their lives and their civic responsibilities as poets together, or together in a way that seems to be the right kind of mixture. Do you think this is a reflection of a trend that, that we're seeing just in general in the U.S., or is it um, sort of particularly acute in the community of writers and poets you know, it's as a hard, phenomenon? It's hard to say. I think the funny thing about it is American poets just are... American poets in general, from of all aesthetic temperaments, are, you know, very entranced by 20th century European, Latin American uh, poetry, which is very political, and the common life, the domestic life, and the civic life, the the, uh, the political life. Uh, for a lot of those poets, there isn't so much of a distinction. But I think as American poets, when we read someone like Cesar Vallejo, when we read someone like Cheslam Miwash, um, we tend to be intimidated by them. You know, I think we tend to look at those poets and see that the, the suffering that they underwent, the political testament, the witnessing and survivorhood that so, so much about that poetry is something that, you know, uh, we can never match or equal. And in some ways, that creates the wrong sort of message from those poets. So uh, it's a curious sort of thing right now because I think uh, American writers read a lot of very activist and committed poetry, uh, and they're very influenced by it in a certain respect, but it doesn't emerge in their poetry a lot of the time. Um, you can look at that Poets Against the War, putting it's now Poets Against War website that Sam Hamill started, and it's got something like 20,000 poems archived on that website. But if you went through those poems and started to try to evaluate those poems as defensible pieces of art and as activist poems which have a message that somehow can be made use of, you know, there's not a lot of there there. And it's a funny phenomenon. Are these um, poems from poets who are writing work that is um, that does have the there there when it's about some other material, or are these poets who are not necessarily sort of writing at the level of um, some of our more skilled poets in the country? Well, you know, I think a lot of the, well, the nice thing about that site is that there are a lot of non-professional poets who have postings on it, as well as professional poets, as well as poets who are poets of reputation. But even those poems by the poets of reputation just seem to be um, kind of diluted and simplistic and really don't talk about this sort of intricate interrelation between uh, the lived life, the domestic life, the domestic life of an average American and something that moves beyond that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, my I have far more experience in, say, Latin America than I do in Eastern Europe, although uh, I think there's some similar experiences there as what I will describe in Latin America, that the folks who wear the hat of politician and of um, 
thinker and of poet are often the same person. So one can be um, an influential public thinker and an influential politician and an influential, in some cases, um, even business person. Um, yeah. It can be the same person. Whereas here in the U.S., we tend to have um, the person running the corporation not necessarily being the person who's penning um, reputable poems. Yeah. Um, and so we really do kind of... Um, demarcate areas of um, turf well, that, that it's permissible to walk into. Um, is this sort of dilution that you're finding in political poetry in the U.S. Um, folks fearing to tread in turf that is not their own? Or, I mean, like, I, I, I don't know that there is a real answer to this, but it's quite curious to me that, that we can't seem to write, necessarily write substantive poetry in the way... Um, for political contexts in the way we find um, folks doing in other parts of the world? Well, it's mysterious. It's hard to say. I mean, in some respects, it also has to do with the audience for poetry, which is um, pretty small. Um, you know, Charles Bernstein defines contemporary poetry as unpopular culture. And you know, as a consequence, I think that uh, American poets tend to feel a lot of the time that um, the audience that they are speaking to, an audience of like-minded individuals, is in fact such a couture that um, to really speak about events or subjects that go beyond um, the diameter of that couture is uh, something a lot of them don't do. And it's... It's mysterious to me because when you go back to, say, American poets' response to the Vietnam War, um, there were writers such as Ginsburg and especially for me, Robert Lowell, who were able to find a way to create that sort of fusion between public address and personal address, between civic responsibility and uh, a compelling uh, personal poetry. You write in a recent review published in the current issue of the Southern Review, Writing in the South, um, you, at the beginning that Lowell um, wrote, history has to live with what was here, clutching and close to fumbling all we had. Um, and you say that this famously visceral poet refuses to make history an abstraction. Um, and then you go on to um, review the work of poet Natasha Trethewey and um, Major Jackson and talk a little bit about the struggles that they have with identity politics, which you mentioned at the beginning of, um, of this interview. What role do you see identity politics and sort of history as, a, a, as an abstraction? Do, does, does history, political history and um, personal identity, are those things competing with each other um, for sort of airtime in the poetry world? That's, that's a good question. I really don't know the answer to it. Though I think a lot of times their uh, American poets bifurcate those two things, and they kind of swear an allegiance to one or the other, but not both. Is that possible? Not both at once. Well, I don't think anyone does it consciously. I don't think anyone does it deliberately. But you know, there have been a lot of critics on the left, like Terry Eagleton and Todd Gitlin, who have really. And I'm not sure I would go this far, but Gitlin certainly feels this way, that identity politics in a lot of ways so um, balkanized 
you know, the collective consciousness of the left and left intellectuals to make some kind of important and urgent statement that it's been a bad thing for uh, political and literary culture. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but, you know, a lot of people make that argument pretty urgently and persuasively. Well, we're going to have to pause then and think about that for a second and take a break. Um, you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is David Wojohn. We'll be right back. afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. That was a collection of folks who included Junior Parker, and I, I wanted to play that little bit of music because um, I, my guest today is David Wojohn, and one of your bo- earlier books um, than the one that we were speaking about in the first um, part of the show is called Mystery Train, and in it there is a, a sonnet sequence that deals a lot with music. And um, you've said in several places, in fact, on that same blog, smartishspace.com, um, Poets Q&A, um, that singers have been big influences. And when I asked you if there was particular music that you um, would like to play during the, the spots, one of the suggestions you made was, um, well, you, actually it wasn't a direct suggestion, but you said, well, since the book's called Mystery Train, a lot of folks have played Elvis, but you prefer Junior Parker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I may have gotten to the reason why folks play Elvis it's hard to find the Junior Parker version. <laughs> so, so we played a little bit um, of Junior Parker of something else. But I wonder if you tell us why you prefer one over the other. What is it that Junior Parker's doing in the version of Mystery Train that Elvis isn't? Oh, I don't know. It's just faster and crazier and more feral. And, you know, Elvis himself early on was pretty feral, but he didn't really quite match the ferality of Junior Parker. And what's appealing about that particular sort of wildness? Like, as a, um, is that an aesthetic that's interesting to you, or is that a sort of grab you in the gut and, and oh, run away I, I with? I think it's both. <laughs> I think it's both. Does it inflect how you think about writing your poems? Well, you know, I listen to music a lot when I write, and uh, people of my generation, I mean, there are whole huge spots of uh, my synapses that, you know, are, are are devoted to, you know, Dylan lyrics. You know, I, I could have at some point decided that I would memorize long passages of Yeats, but it didn't work out that way. And so it's just stuff that informs your consciousness, and how, how can it not? And it's it's meant a lot to me. <laughs> Um, and do you li- so you listen to music with words while writing poems, or do you listen to music without words? Is there a, a distinction? Um, I listen to music with words. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, a lot of my friends like jazz, and a lot of my friends who are poet friends listen to jazz a lot when they compose. Uh, but I like lyrics, and lyrics tend to help to generate a lot of things for me when I try to write. Well, let's take a, l- a look at some of the poems that are 
in all light, I can only say they must be um, inspired by some of the music you've been listening to, the, the sonnet sequence in Mystery Train. Um, if you'll read one of the, the sonnets for us. Sure. Um. And tell us a little bit about the series, because part of it's excerpted in the new book, Interrogation Palace, um, and but it's a very long sequence. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's 35 poems. Uh, it, it was longer originally, but I cut it back, and I guess it's an attempt to sort of see a part of 20th century American history, you know, through the lens of popular music, and especially rock and roll in the first couple of decades. And... Again, when I was starting to write the sequence, I just felt that there was a kind of introspective sort of poetry that I was then writing that was no longer very satisfying to me. And it was just really liberating to write about somebody who wasn't me. And it was liberating to do some research and use some documentary sort of stuff within the poems. It was also interesting to sort of wholly invent apocryphal stories, too. And I just thought it was interesting to take a form that's as venerable as the sonnet and try to use it as a way of approaching uh, contemporary culture. So this one, it's called, and you know, the I was also writing a lot of narrative poems. I was trying not to write narrative poems. So um, what I ended up doing is writing narrative sonnets, but a lot of the, not, the narrative comes through these incredibly long titles, such as this one, um, The Assassination of John Lennon as Depicted by the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, Niagara Falls, Ontario, 1987. Smuggled human hair from Mexico falls radiant around the waxy O of her scream. Shades on leather coat and pants, Yoko on her knees, like the famous Kent State photo, where the girl can't shriek her boyfriend alive, her arms windmilling Ohio sky. A pump in John's chest heaves to mimic death throes, the blood is made of latex, his glasses broken on the plastic sidewalk. A scowling David Chapman, his arms outstretched, his pistol barrel spiraling fake smoke in a siren's red wash, completes the composition. And somewhere, background music plays Imagine before the tableau darkens. We push a button to renew the scream. The chest starts up again. Thank you very much. That's David Wojan reading from Mystery Chain, one of the sonnets in the sequence of 30 35 35 my numbers are never very good um that's a really gruesome image of john lennon's death um made over into wax um but there's just tons of humor in that in in part because it's john lennon's death made over into wax um and the heart starts up again you said in the introduction to um, the reading of that poem that prior to writing the poems, you'd been writing a lot of interior stuff. And in the first part of the show, you were talking about the um, sort of trap that a lot of U.S. poets are falling into, which is writing, sort of turning in instead of m- manifesting their civic duty on the page. Um, how how does this sort of fit in with that schema of you're, you're turning outward to write about other people and to adopt these different sort of personas? Um, is there a sort of civic duty in this as well, or is that a whole other project? Well, 
I guess I would want my poems to try to shuffle back and forth between those two things. And, you know, there's something that must be said if you're a poet about the personal. I mean, you know, poets tend to write because they have a few obsessions that they tend to come back to again and again and again. And it's not a lot of things. It's probably five or six things that manifest themselves repeatedly over a writing career. And if you want to make your writing career meaningful, you just find new techniques, new approaches to um, address those obsessions. And so, I, you know, I think of myself as a poet who has a very, very large streak that's primarily autobiographical, but I don't want that to be uh, the, the only thing in my toolkit. And the poets who I love, the poets who I've learned from, I think the most, are people like, like Lowell and James Wright, were poets who had that same sort of desire to move from public and civic sorts of statement to intensely personal sorts of statements. And the shuttle back and forth was something that they took for granted rather than felt was some kind of very difficult sort of borderline. Mm-hmm. I've been, um, I teach some undergraduates, uh, freshmen actually, a, a writing course, and it's called Of Love and Poetry. And we're, it's a composition class, but we're using poetry to sort of explore mm-hmm. um, what it might mean to become human and um, how poetry could help us learn those lessons. And one of the passages we read in our textbook this week had to do with um, the difference between thinking and emotion, thoughts and emotion, and that um, poetry is sort of the, the purview of poetry is emotion and that it helps us um, access emotion and as poets experience emotion on the page and work through these obsessions you mentioned. Um, but then my students ask me, but but you can't not think. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? And I, um, I, in sort of circling back to the question from the beginning of the, the show, which was what is it so? Why is it so hard for U.S. poets to get at um, a more integrated approach to sort of what's going on in the world? To take the interior and integrate it with the civic, and integrate mm-hmm. it with the world, and put it on the page in um, highly accomplished ways. Um, it seems to me that there is some gap. That my students are actually asking a very good question that I have no answer for. You know, how how is it that the emotion and the thinking isn't lining up, or that they're separate, or um, and it's such a an unidentifiable gap when I try and answer it for them that I'm even having a hard time articulating a question about it for you. But um, I guess the heart of the question is, do you think we're defining ourselves into a corner <laughs> by saying, um, back to identity politics, by saying, well, I'm only going to sort of associate with this because I am X, Y, Z, or I'm only going to talk about this because I can't do what Miwash does. Um, because I haven't seen what Miwash has seen, kind of thing. Well, you know, in some respects, the problem with, you know, turning things into those sorts of dichotomies and dualities, thinking versus feeling, etc., is that um, you really end up not thinking enough about just the formal elements of poetry. I mean, the thing that makes me continue to delight in writing is simply that it's a, a great line in, from the British poet W.S. Graham where he starts out a poem by saying, what is the language using us for? 
And so much of it is just trying to immerse yourself you know, in uh, the resources of the English language and n- knowing that if you immerse yourself in the right sorts of ways, uh, these dichotomies we're talking about won't matter. They'll somehow mysteriously uh, be destroyed. And what you'll have is language on a different sort of level that um, addresses both of those things at once. And at least that's the kind of goal you want as a poet. It sounds really utopian. But, um, you know, writing's a very lonely situation. You know, Berryman defined writing poetry as a man or woman alone in a room with the English language. And for years I thought that meant that poetry is simply this kind of, you know, existential sort of lock yourself in a closet with very, very little resources. But you're locking yourself there with the English language, which has extraordinary resources. And uh, so, I mean, some of it, I think the answer to that question is just delight in the language and a lot of these problems, these issues, won't necessarily just wither away, but they won't seem so important. Does that extend to the resources of the of sort of received forms and um, the 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 legacy and history of poetry in the English language? In the poem that you just read, it's um, you said in the introduction that one of the reasons you wanted to write the sonnets was to um, move yourself a little bit away from writing narrative and writing interior sort of stuff so to, to adopt these personas. So you took a received form and other people's lives, essentially, to, to use that. Yeah. I, you know, when I was first starting out as a poet, I mean, I think there was a notion that, you know, there was at one time something kind of like the war in heaven in Milton, and the free verse poets and the formalist poets had this big battle, and, and free verse won. And, you know, the and received form would simply go away. And so it was really when I was, actually I'd started a teaching career and I had to uh, teach this graduate course on prosody, on poetic form, that I realized that I was pretty metrically illiterate. And as a consequence of that, I just crammed and uh, started to make a, a serious study of prosody pretty much after I'd formed myself as a poet. And... I think that that was a good thing because suddenly I saw these resources within the language that I just hadn't thought about very seriously. I was thinking about, again, how, you know, the emotional life of myself as a poet. And, you know, suddenly I was presented with prosody. And, you know, I was like a kid in a candy shop because, you know, suddenly the language had these mysterious and wonderful codes that nevertheless made sense, that you could um, adopt certain sort of technical strategies and understand what you're doing, that it wasn't all intuitive. It wasn't all, like Frost said, playing tennis without a net. And uh, I really delighted in that. And the other thing that it ended up doing, I think, for me as a poet is, you know, these issues of whether a poem should be in free verse or a poem should be in some sort of received form, they're not important to me anymore. Every poem is going to dictate uh, which is which. And some poems just, um, their, their rhetoric or something about the, even the spiritual elements of their utterance are going to be enhanced by writing in, it, in meter or using rhyme. 
some aren't. And so every poem is going to be different in that respect. But, you know, I, I love using received forms when they work. I mean, there's nothing more boring than boring sonnets, and especially sestinas, which are, you know, almost uh, impossible to write a good one. There are a couple, you know, maybe two or three in the English language that are any good. But they're very popular, and I think that they're popular among poets today simply because it allows people to just revel and delight just in the puzzle aspects of the language. And that could only be a good thing. Well, it's the top of the hour, so we're going to have to pause for a second on that note. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Let's try that again. Ann Arbor. This is the official ID. 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is David Wojohn. You're listening to The Living Writer Show, and we'll be right back. Was a cowboy I knew in South Texas His face was burnt deep by the sun Part history, part sage, part Mexican He was there when Pancho Villa was young And he'd tell you a tale of the old days When the country was wild all around Sit out under the stars of the Milky Way and listen while the You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is David Wojohn. And uh, that was not Richard Thompson, apparently. <laughs> I downloaded what I thought was a Richard Thompson tune called Coyotes. Um, but we don't know who that is. I'm going to have to go see what happened to my iTunes download. Um, in any case, I intended to download Richard Thompson, um, who is someone you are quite fond of, I understand. Yes. He's played a big role in your sort of listening. Dylan, you, you sort of said he changed your life, and then also Richard Thompson was one of the I, I one love, of those in that list. I love singer-songwriters who are serious writers. Uh, Towns Van Zandt is somebody who's meant a lot to me over the years, too. Yeah, really wonderful talent um, there. Um, that was the other. That was, that was who I would have downloaded next. But I found this Richard, <laughs> this non-Richard Thompson piece. Because um, he's British, you know, and that guy. Yeah, did and not that guy was British. so not British. Yes. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Well, I thought maybe you know I was just misremembering who I thought Richard Thompson was. Yikes. Well. Um, that brings us right into the last section of the show, and my note says, gussing up the painful. <laughs> so let's work on that a little bit. Um, you Much is made about literary partnerships, and I'd like to talk a little bit about a literary trio. Um, often, uh, you and Linda Hall and Mark Doty are sort of mentioned in the same breath um, as um, a, a literary trio. <laughs> You've all sort of um, come of age as poets together. And um, I wonder if you talk about if if you could sort of name an aesthetic that might um, represent why the three of you are set in the same breath, or give us a why, um, historical or aesthetic or otherwise, that that makes you guys the, the the three musketeers. Well, you know, I've never really thought of us as a trio, so that's that's an interesting kind of characterization of, you know, we were all born within the same 
uh, within about a year of one another in 53 or 54. So, you know, some of, I think, what formed us and a lot of the poets of our generation is having a Cold War childhood. And uh, I think the notion that you get when you're about eight or nine in, in that generation, and I think I was nine during the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis, so I was just old enough to know that something was very wrong. And you grow up with this sense of uh, impending doom, of apocalypse, and yet you kind of live your life in a very sort of uh, normal, average, leave-it-to-beaver sort of childhood anyway. Uh, I remember when, the, when we heard the news, I was in fifth grade during the, hearing the news of the Kennedy assassination, and it was during an air raid drill in one of those duck-and-cover drills where they'd take you to, like, the cafeteria in the basement. You'd have to put your head between your legs, and they'd shut the, turn the lights off and on to uh, replicate what a nuclear attack might seem like. And suddenly they turned off all the lights and then told us the president had died. So uh, that kind of fusion between those two things, I think, informed... Um, informed our work a lot, and I, in, in subtle ways, not in real overt ways, but I think that there is a sense, and you really get it just so acutely in Linda Hull's work, of every moment can turn from a triumphant one into an elegiac one, that uh, the lever of transition between those two things can be just sudden and serendipitous and completely unpredictable. And so I think her poetry sort of moves from these beautiful sort of lyric reckonings to things that are scary, frightening, tragic. And I think a lot of that came from that particular historical moment that we grew up in. There's um, Earlier in the show, I mentioned a review that you have in the current issue of the Southern Review. And, and this particular issue is unusual because um, it's the 17th in a series of writing in the South that started called Writing in the South. Um, that started in the 60s. And one of the things that is was said in a, an essay in 1968, when I believe the series began by poet and critic Walter Sullivan, was that um, Flannery O'Connor wasn't so much a Southern writer, she was a Catholic writer. Mm -hmm. he, he refers to someone else. Um, and and think that, that what, in fact, he says, um, O'Connor was a Catholic writer, not a Southern writer at all. And it was her Catholicness or that that Small C Catholic. Yes. That um, distinguished her. Actually, no, it's a capital C Catholic in this. Yeah. Hmm. Capital C Catholic um, that distinguished her. Um, and that that's what's important about being from a Southern writer now is that you have something else that distinguishes you. So um, you mentioned that in your review that Trethaway and um, Major Johnson... Major Jackson. Major Jackson, I'm sorry. Um, have um, this identity politics that they're sort of struggling with and against, mm -hmm. that that's part of what's making them. Y'all had the Cold War. You teach, and you have loads of students right now. Do you see them struggling with a particular issue that's distinct, that will be their sort of thing that makes them the three musketeers? Generationally? Yeah. Boy, it's, it's hard to say. I couldn't predict. Um, I... You know, I have a five-year-old twin sons, and when I think of the economic mess that this country is in, when I think of the ecological disasters that uh, we are headed for, um, I I worry. 
I worry for them, and I guess all I can say is that there will be plenty of subject matter in the future. And some of that subject matter won't necessarily be um, the most pleasant stuff to write about, but it, 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 will, it will choose the next couple of generations. And I think poetry will continue on. Poet, poets will always be there despite that. Well, one of the, many of our listeners were born sort of at the end of the Cold War, so it's, it's very hard to imagine this um, description you have of um, ducking in the shelter, f- trying to figure out what would we do in, an, in a nuclear yeah. attack. I actually remember the tail end of all of that, and we had some uh, sort of tests and drills and that sort of thing um, toward the end of the, the Cold War era. Um, but it may it probably comes as a surprise and will to your sons too this feeling of sort of constantly shifting between oh no everything's fine to oh no everything's going to be wrong i i i find when i talk to folks now largely people have the impression that well yeah it's kind of bad but everything's fine not in a way that is that switch that the world could blow up any minute um although it seems if you look at the details that it's no less dire than it was potentially during the cold war um can you name or point to something that makes that difference of illusion, of the, the illusion of safety that, that people seem to feel a little bit more now than they did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just that denial has made great inroads. And, uh, you know, denial is so seductive. And everybody is capable of denial of... Uh, of various stripes and of, of a great variety of denial and, you know, a great uh, amount of it. So, I, you know, I think that there's just something now endemic in the culture that um, we've sort of been trained to act like that. Is that also then maybe, I hate to keep hammering this one, but is that also then maybe contributing to some of this inward turning that you described in the first segment of the show that poets are sort of turning inward, is that, a, is that also a kind of denial? Well, yes and no, because, you know, in some ways just to say, to insist in contemporary American society that you have a rich and various private life, one of those things that poetry is really good at exploring, that in and of itself is a political statement. That's a political action. That in and of itself uh, sets you apart from uh, a lot of the motivating forces in um, contemporary society. It doesn't help to solve contemporary society's problems, but it sets you apart. And if, you know, one of the things I always think about in working with students is, you know, it's not really going to be you know, choosing a career as a poet or choosing to write poetry is not going to get you anything in the world's eyes. But one of the great things about writing poetry is it's a totally benign activity. You know, in almost every case, nobody is hurt, nobody is damaged by writing a bad poem or even a good poem. And, you know, when my students choose between doing that and, you know, the moral minefield or ethical minefield, they would go through going to law school or medical school or business school. You know, poetry comes out smelling like a rose because nobody has done, nobody is damaged through writing poetry. Um, 
I guess that begs the question then, is it possible to do more than be benign? <laughs> Can we actually um, negotiate that moral minefield? I mean, is it do is there always in sort of making strides to do something that isn't just not damaging um, also then possibly damaging? Yeah, it's, I don't know. The the thing to keep remembering about poetry is that it's such a mysterious force and it's a force that you really can't control. It's a force that, you know, has roots in, I mean, in Eliade's book on shamanism, it, you know, in the end of it, if, you know, 510th page, he says, where does the spirit of the shaman exist today? And he says, in lyric poetry. And it, it's magical. There's something magical, and I don't want to sound corny about it, but it's a powerful and mysterious force, and that's important. Well, that's a wonderful place to wrap up. Thanks for, thanks for tying it so ni- nicely together, um, which we're going to have to do because it's the end of the show. David Wojan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Ashley. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Chaz Brett, for engineering and doing a lovely job as usual. The Sports Report is next. You're tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and David, you're going to be reading tomorrow night. At tomorrow f- afternoon. At 5 p.m. at the Residential College. So y'all come on out and hear David Wojan read from Interrogation Palace. And Yes. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.